We are in the second week of a new series all about the head-heart connection. Science has finally caught up with scripture and affirms that we don't just think with our minds, we think with our hearts as well. And it turns out spiritual growth comes from connecting the mind and the heart. Our faith asks us to make certain decisions about who we will be and how we will live our lives. And those decisions aren't just intellectual. They're formed in our hearts as well. Last week, we looked at the decision we all need to make about Jesus of Nazareth. He himself asked the question, who do you say that I am? And he demands that we settle this question for ourselves. And it's complicated. He's universally recognized as a sage, and he claimed to be the Son of God. That's complicated. So that means either he is who he says he was, and we should worship him as God, or not. Basically, he's a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. To really follow Jesus, we must not only believe that he is Lord in our heads, we've got to believe in our hearts. We've got to love him as Lord. Last week, we said that question, who is Jesus, is the most important question of all, the most important question ever. Today, we're going to look at another question, and you could call it the second most important question ever. It's a question we all have to ask and answer for ourselves, and how we answer the question will determine how we choose to live our lives and what kind of people we will be. And that certainly qualifies as an important question. But to really live out our answer to this question, our ascent has got to be more than intellectual. It's got to be emotional. It's got to move from the head to the heart. We find this teaching in the ninth chapter of Mark's gospel. Jesus and his disciples left from there and began a journey through Galilee, but he did not wish anyone to know about it. So he's traveling through Galilee, which is the region where he was from. Nazareth is in Galilee. But Mark tells us he didn't want anyone to know about it. How come? We want to spend some time alone with the disciples. He's teaching them about the values of his kingdom as opposed to the world's values. There's certain things that he must do and teaching that he must instill in his disciples while he still has time with them. So he's taking this opportunity to teach them. He's telling them the Son of Man is to be handed over to men and they will kill him. And three days after his death, the Son of Man will rise. This is the second time he tells the apostles he's going to die. The cross was so unexpected, so shocking, so scandalous, the apostles needed to be prepared for it. Though in his predictions, he's carefully placing the cross in the light of the resurrection. Not only predicted that he would die, he predicted that he would rise. The cross would be very brutal, very real, but wasn't Jesus' final destination. And he wanted them to know that going into it. However, they don't get it. They, at this point, they just don't get it. 
They don't understand the saying and were afraid to question him. In their thinking, they didn't understand. In their feeling, they were afraid. The Greek word that Mark uses for afraid, also translated as misunderstood, goes more toward our modern conception of denial. They were in denial. What they were hearing from the Lord regarding his death was utterly and completely at odds with what they think is going to happen, what they have come to expect is going to happen, what they believed must happen. They have no emotional ability. They simply cannot hold this information. The only way that they can keep moving forward is to act as if what he said was not so. No surprise that they go on to display the classic symptoms of denial. They came to Capernaum and once inside the house, he began to ask them, um, what were you arguing about on the way? But they remained silent. Why? Because they'd been discussing who was the greatest. While Jesus is trying to prepare the apostles for his coming passion and crucifixion, they're fantasizing about a preferred future and even jockeying for imaginary positions of power and prestige in their make-believe kingdom to come. There's this incredible juxtaposition here between Jesus' humility and the disciples' fantasy. Jesus predicts his passion and death three times in Mark's gospel, and three times the apostles respond in just this way by voicing their personal ambitions for the future. You know, the apostles are heroes and saints for sure, and the church is founded on their faith, but it didn't start out so heroically. The apostles did not follow Jesus out of pure altruism, high ideals, or even deep faith. They didn't follow him because it was the right thing to do. They followed him because they believed that he would be king of Israel, and that once he became king of Israel, they would have seats at the table of power and authority as well. It was just a question of who got which seats. And that was a source of ongoing conversation for them. That's what's going on here. The Lord recognized their failure to understand. He anticipated it. He expected it of them and sometimes of us. The point is, while growing in understanding Jesus is crucial to growing as a follower of Jesus, we don't have to wait until we understand everything up front. Some people make that mistake. Some of us have made that mistake, refusing to give the church or faith a try because it doesn't make sense to us, because we don't understand everything. But none of us understand everything, and we never will, at least this side of heaven. Our understanding grows as we follow. Our understanding grows as we follow. How? He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone wishes to be first, he shall be the last and the servant of all. 
So he sits down. He's assuming the place and position of teacher. He's very deliberate and intentional at this moment because he's instructing them in a fundamental, in a critical truth. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, you want to be great, and that's a problem because that's flat out wrong. Stop trying to be great. He doesn't say that. Instead, he actually affirms their ambition. He just explains the world's way to greatness won't get them to the greatness that's great in God's eyes. The world says greatness is all about being large and in charge. The world says greatness means you get to tell others what to do and you don't have to do anything you don't want to do. The world says greatness is all about power, prestige, and, and privilege. Make enough money and you'll be great. Have enough employees and you'll be great. Publish enough books and you'll be great. Well, I always thought that kind of was true. But Jesus says, nope. None of those things makes you great. Now, please understand, power, privilege, prestige, and greatness in God's eyes are not mutually exclusive. Not at all. You can have money, that's good. That makes you wealthy. You can have power, that's good. That makes you powerful. You can have fame, that makes you famous. All of which are good things. I would settle for any one of them. They're good things. They just don't make you great. What does? Service. Service to others. Service to others is the primary way in which believers imitate the Lord and grow like him. So Jesus very deliberately makes this point. And then he gives the apostles very concrete application of what exactly this service involves, what precisely it looks like. Taking a child, he said to them, whoever receives one child such as this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent Children were considered a liability of no value, at least until they were old enough to work. And even then, they were marginalized and ignored by the adult community. To pay attention to them would have been a waste of time. It would have been like paying attention to those who can do nothing for you in return. And that is precisely the point. True greatness comes from serving people, especially people who can do nothing for you in return. What is service anyway? It's charity in action. Charity in action adding value to the people around us. And that's what the Lord wants us to do, adding value to the people around us, especially the people who can do nothing for us. Why? Because it's how we come to grow in understanding of the Lord. It's how we become more like him. It's how we become great. There are myriad ways to serve, and I know so many of you already do. Allow me to suggest just two to consider today. 
Challenge yourself to begin to more deliberately use the positional authority you already have to serve others. Whoever you are, in whatever stage or state of life you're in, you have positional authority, by which I mean you have daily opportunities in the exact specific circumstances you find yourself in to add value to other people's lives. In your daily quiet time, each day, every day, include a moment to consider exactly how you might do that. Be deliberate about it. Second, consider serving in some very specific ministry here at church. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard us talk about STEPS. It's an acronym for the STEPS that we think everybody should take in growing as disciples. And one of those steps is about service, serving in ministry or on mission. Missions are what we call service outside the parish. Ministry is what we call service inside the parish, directed to other parishioners, guests, and visitors. Both help us practice. They help train us for living a life of service. And this weekend, we're making a, a, a special invitation, a gentle nudge to serve on weekends here at Nativity, especially here in big church on one of our weekend ministry teams. Parking greeters, host ministers, cafe ministers, uh, creative tech, ops. Starting with kickoff weekend last weekend, we now find ourselves again welcoming many more people than we have since pre-COVID. And that means we need many more ministers. That, of course, is a high-class problem to have, but it's still a problem. And that's where you can help us out. We're not asking for a huge commitment of time, just a couple of hours, once or twice a month. You never have to serve alone. Our hospitality ministers serve on teams. And don't worry about being prepared or know what to do. We will set you up for success. Serving will activate your faith in a practical, helpful way and help us shape that irresistible environment that we're after for guests and visitors. Whether you're new and haven't had the opportunity to serve or been around for a while and just never taken the opportunity or you used to serve and have been taking a break, here's a chance to begin or begin again. It's simple as can be, just text SERVE to 410-216-5534. One of our ministry leaders will reach out to you to discuss what kind of service interests you and what kind of schedule options work for you. And if you prefer, you can sign up in the old-fashioned way out on the concourse after Mass. Just look for the Next Steps kiosk. Did you know that God actually wants you to be great? It's true, He does. He wants you to be great. The question is, do you want to be great? It's an important question. And it's a kind of tricky one, too, because it turns out the path to greatness is not at all what anyone would ever expect. 
Live your life serving others, especially those who can never do anything for you in return. That would be great.